and welcome to Unfamiliar Tales, a podcast about animals telling animal stories. We are your hosts. I am Prathima Gopalakrishnan, and with me is Haley Milliman. Hi, Haley. How's it going? Hi, it's good. We're here. Part two. Very Part exciting. two. <laughs> yeah. So episodes one through three were all about part one of this uh, very remarkable book, The Life and Opinions of the Tomcat Murr. We learned all about the birth of this cat, this very remarkable cat who's taught himself to read and write. And, and we also learn about this book that's gotten sliced together with Murr's autobiography, this biography of Johannes Chrysler, who is a musical man. And we learn about his childhood woes, his career woes. He has a lot of woes. And like we've said on on this podcast before, the biography of Chrysler is actually a prequel to Murr's autobiography. And you're invested in the story of Chrysler, of course, because Chrysler is a fascinating gentleman, but also let's get real, really because he's eventually going to become Murr's human patron. So you have some investment in seeing how that comes to be. In part one, um, so we, for Murr, we hear again about Murr's birth, his coming into awareness about how he ended up with Master Abraham. And we follow Murr up to when he first meets his mother. And we also see the inception of his scholarly pursuits. So we learn about how he first became interested in reading and writing, and also how he first started to learn to read and write as well. And when we leave Murr, he has just spoken with his mother and she has warned him that his talents are remarkable and he might be in danger of his master using those for his own gain. She implies to him that Master Abraham may have his own selfish interests in Murr's learning. We'll actually come back to that in episode five. We'll pick up on does Murr have reason to be suspicious of Master Abraham? Should he be worried? Should he be trying to hide what he's doing? But today's episode is all about the awkward age that is <laughs> adolescence. We pick up with Murr, who has first, who has discovered his his for or he's begun his foray into scholarly pursuits. He is starting to learn a little bit more about the world. And when we pick up with him in part two, he is experiencing the awkward age of adolescence where he's starting to become a little bit lethargic, uh, a little bit of a nuisance, and he's butting heads a bit with Master Abraham because it seems like Murr is experiencing the kind of personality shift that we tend to think about teenagers across across apparently all species as experiencing. Yeah, so it's all, so he says he becomes lethargic, he becomes a nuisance, he, he doesn't really want to read or write, he just wants to sleep all day. And he, at one point, Murr jumps up on Master Abraham's desk, which again is a very, very beloved place to him. Master Abraham's desk, he loves his desk. And he dips his tail into Master Abraham's inkwell and he paints <laughs> beautiful pictures with his tail. And Master yes. Abraham is not pleased with him. So on this question of adolescence, Murr is... Murr is himself suspicious of the term adolescence as applied to cats. So he says... My dear young tomcat, have you never once in your life found yourself in a state of mind which, although you cannot account for it, brought down upon you the bitterest of reproaches from all sides, and perhaps some nasty bites from your cronies? You were lazy, quarrelsome, behaved, greedy, couldn't be pleased with anything. You were always in the wrong place, a nuisance to one and all. In short, you were a perfectly intolerable fellow. Be 
comforted young Tomcat. The bleak period of your life did not arise from your true, deeper nature. No, it was the debt you paid to the principle ruling us all in following the bad example of mankind who first introduced this transient condition. Be comforted, young Tomcat, for even I fared no better. Murr is saying adolescence is something constructed, like here's how it's constructed for humans. Um, we're just following the bad example of mankind in this kind of self-consciously. Mm-hmm. I see it as him using the term adolescence because it's been, because it, that's what it's been described to him as from Abraham. Is that kind of how you're seeing it as well? That's how I'm seeing it too. Yeah. yeah. And some of the things that he describes himself doing, <laughs> I read that and I was like, sounds like my cat's never left adolescence. <laughs> I felt a little gu- guilty reading this because I realized that I must be treating my cats as if they are always in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> like whenever they're inside the office, I want them outside the office. When they're outside the office, I don't want them on the counter. All these rules feel very consistent to me, but I don't know how good I've been at communicating them to communicating the rules to my cats. This doesn't seem like an adolescent condition thing. This seems like yeah, how, <laughs> yeah, this seems like the life of a cat. Yeah. yeah. Cause he talks earlier. He, we were talking about this the other day. He talks about how he starts being overcome by an aversion to a, <laughs> to a surplus of indigestible things, which I think is him just talking about coughing up hairballs a lot, which he first brings up <laughs> in this time as this is part of the adolescent condition where all of a sudden he has this aversion and coughs up hairballs all the time. That is maybe a behavior that started for Mer in adolescence, but will get, <laughs> likely continue. <laughs> or I feel like, like cat, most cat owners know the, ha- the hairballs continue. So a lot of the things that are associated with adolescence don't seem contained to a, a cat's adolescent years the whole point is we Mm -hmm. don't know if there's such a thing as cat adolescence and mer at least is is saying "Eh, (laughs) maybe not (laughs) yeah mer is saying we are just following the sorry example of mankind which is fair yeah (laughs) Yeah, he's lethargic and yeah so many of these things i was just reading this and i was like oh so what my cat does all the time like he's (laughs) sleeping all the time he's become ill-behaved and greedy oh <laughs> like my cat at every yeah. meal time he's not in adolescence he's achieved his final form <laughs> he's, just, yeah. <laughs> he's just now a cat <laughs> and not a kitten anymore <laughs> oh poor mer <laughs> so mer in addition to meeting his mother in part one and he only meets her for you know the one time but he also meets his he thinks he meets this cat that he thinks might be his uncle because the this large it's a large tomcat that Murr tries to steal food from and ends up a little worse for wear. One thing that we'll be talking about a lot in this episode is A Murr is maybe not the best at stealing food. He could get some lessons from my cats on that. And second he yeah, he his book Maybe smarts, only... not street smarts. <laughs> I feel yeah, like. so that, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, he's cerebral. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I finally watched Bridgerton because I I refused to watch it in December because everyone was watching it, but I finally did watch it a couple weeks ago, and what an amazing show! I really, 
<laughs> can't believe I almost missed out. Wait, um, how does this tie into Murray? I'm curious. Because because there's Marina. Marina is dealing with just like the total abandonment from everyone around her. No one is willing to guide her. No one's willing to support her in any way. Like she has this, she's not sure what to do about this pregnancy. And she reaches out to someone. Maybe she reaches out to, maybe later in an episode, she reaches out to Daphne herself or Daphne offers to help or something like that. And then Daphne just like directly emails the general basically and the general doesn't reply and marina says are you so unworldly and for some <laughs> every time so now so now that's become a, a phrase that i enjoy repeating yes, every time i'm reading mer are you so unworldly are you so unworldly mer that's basically the summary of pont of, of one of the episodes we'll be talking about today which is mer's uh, day about town what could be more adolescent than a a day about town learning how unworldly you are and like we said the a lot of the markers of adolescence in part two don't really seem specific to adolescence but mm-hmm. Mur says Mur says that he himself was jolted out of adolescence through mm-hmm. this incident he escapes the or he doesn't necessarily escape but he's compelled i feel like out of the out of the the relative comfort or not necessarily comfort but the relative safety of master abraham's home so he emerges from this place that's really been his sanctuary where he's learned to read and write where he's had several adventures and also i think importantly He's had several interactions with different types of people, as well as other cats and dogs, even all within this kind of very safe space. He's learned, he's, I feel like learned enough to be intrigued and excited by the outside world, but not learned enough so that he's prepared for what happens when he emerges from this cave. So he has this kind of naivete that we we see in his first kind of steps into the outside world, which I think are partially because he's a very learned cat. He reads and writes and he's in this like literary world. Then he's also, again, had interactions with many different types of people and animals. And so he has this almost, I guess, almost adolescent self-assuredness that when he escapes, or not, again, not escapes, but when he leaves uh, Master Abraham's home, that he will know what to do. And he almost immediately finds out that he doesn't. (laughs) And then he's thrust into this scenario where he's woefully ill-prepared and then in danger because, because of his lack of preparation. So what actually happens? So he is outside of his house, outside of the house where Master Abraham lives. He finds this, he calls it a lavishly upholstered machine on four wheels, standing in the yard of the house where his master lives. And Murr later learns that the proper name for this is an English half carriage. And so he sees this kind of lavishly appointed machine and he sees in it that, or he's compelled to climb into the machine, partially because the machine is covered in comfortable upholstery or comfortable cushions that he thinks look just so comfortable he must risk it all so he finds this napping spot in this carriage. And I think it's the same day. It's immediately once he... Well, I couldn't tell. I actually thought yeah. it may have been an ongoing nap. Oh, that's even worse. Poor Mer. That's <laughs> why I was yet. like, hey, yeah, no, it was just like, this is a cool spot. I, I read it as he sees it, he goes to nap, and then the very first time it becomes this this dangerous hell hell machine. But maybe it is the place he's been napping several times, and then, just, and then it one day and it all goes day. wrong. <laughs> Okay, so he the carriage starts moving. He 
here's these people shooing him. I, I don't know when they noticed him or when he got out. It seems like by the time he was shooed off the carriage, he was already in town, maybe? Or, or Master Abraham lives in town anyway. So he, he was like a little bit, a, a small distance away from Master Abraham's house, but he was, you know, still in town. Yes. And I think when it's the, your first time leaving home, even a small distance feels very far away. So it seems like the people realize he's there and shoo him out of the carriage rather Which, quickly. Why would they do that? I know, a sleeping cat. It's a sleep. Wait, it's a sleeping cat. Presumably, it's the half carriage belongs to someone in the building. Maybe yeah. I was trying to think about this because if it's if the person knew Master Abraham, they would have known that this was his cat, and they yeah. wouldn't have shoot him off. But Murr also didn't leave home very often, so maybe they wouldn't have seen him. So if, that's what I'm saying. If yeah. the carriage is associated with Master Abraham, then they would have known. But yeah. as we learn later in this, in part two. I think Master Abraham lives in a building with other people, perhaps. Yeah, he it does. Was a little, yeah. It was a little confusing, yep. how, again, how it's all set up. So it's possible that it was just nearby. Like, yeah, he finds his carriage in the yard, but maybe the yard is shared. Like, maybe yeah. a half carriage. I, I suppose the half carriage didn't belong to Master Abraham, and someone just saw a cat. Yeah, and Why would you show it? I know, Why would you show a cat, cat? From, a, from, yeah, from a it's running carriage? Swarm, how much... Ugh. I don't know. But he gets shooed out of the ca- the carriage, and then he's left in the middle of these bustling streets, and he has no idea where he is or what happens or, or how to get home either. He's just left in this maze that he doesn't expect to be in. And he says, like, endless streets stretched out before me. I heard dogs barking and carriages rattling. And it's the trope of the person who, like, gets off the boat in New York City and then is just, like, overwhelmed or gets off the plane, whatever. <laughs> like, the, the small town person who ends up in the center of Manhattan. And all of a sudden, there's just so much activity bustling everywhere. That's how I picture Murr being tossed out of this carriage. And then there's just activity everywhere beyond anything he's conceptualized or ever even dreamed of. Murr is nothing, I feel like, if not, he's just so, he's so intrepid. And so he's overwhelmed. He's this, like, inexperienced stranger in a strange land. And his, like, first instinct is to let out, like, a very cheerful meow to a passerby. I noticed that. That's so good. Poor That's Murr. his, like, strategy. How yes. to win friends and influence people. Yes. He was like, and he, the way he describes it, too, he's like, I walked up to this person and gave them what I thought was a very winning meow. <laughs> yes. And they, they didn't pat me on the back. They told me a handshake would be the key to everything. All I had to do <laughs> was master that. Because he lived, he lets out this very winning meow and nobody gives a shit. And not only that, but they're just mad at him. So he's either ignored or just actively like a nuisance. He, they set some dogs after him. He's just, it's not a good yeah. first day in the world. No. <laughs> but things start to turn around. He finds this young girl selling mm-hmm. sausages and rolls from a cart. This could be good. Maybe you'll try to win her over with a winning meow. He approaches (laughs) and she smiles at him. uh, And he says, wishing to introduce myself directly as a youth of good education and gallant manners, I arched my back higher and more beautifully than I had ever done before. So she laughs, he goes in for the kill, and he tries to get a sausage. And the girl screams at him and he has to escape again. Thankfully, he does actually manage to get a sausage so at least there's that yes 
And poor guy. He's so confused at why his efforts are not being appreciated. So he's eating his little, he's eating his sausage in a corner by himself. He sits and lets the the sun warm down upon him and basks in the promise of the world and the liveliness of the new experiences he's having. But then he has this kind of cold night where he is, he is lonely, cold. He, He gets hungry again and he doesn't know where his next meal comes from. And he's starting to feel a little bit of a fear and, and desperation. So this actually reminded me of Mer's second work, if you remember, Mousetraps and their influence on the character and achievement of the feline race, which he says is a political work. Which, Naturally. <laughs> yeah, I, I, if I, from what we gathered in part one, that's about, that's about the thrill of earning your own, stealing your own sausages rather than having a fish head put in your bowl for you every day. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> when I read this, I described it as the the Jordan Peterson manifesto <laughs> for cats. Oh, Clean oh, your no. room, catch some mice. Burr, kind of no. No. I was a little troubled by it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> but that's I think that's why when he's enjoying this sausage in the sunlight he's ah this is life this is what i'm really doing it it's like the person who arrives in new york and has their first they, like take the subway give somebody directions for dog. the first time or something and it's like, i did it and then he turns around oh wait i told them the wrong directions it's that kind of moment side. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and then they like step on a rat and they're like oh god why exactly. am i wearing flip-flops <laughs> yeah. so yeah this experience. is a kind yeah. of and incidentally the rat that they stepped on is Caw Dollar, yeah. King of Rats, yeah. from the tragedy. This is a pro-rat podcast. I yes, feel the need yeah. to say this. I have I have known a lot of pet rats in my life. They're <laughs> wonderful animals. And if you ever talk to someone who's had pet rats, the very first thing they'll say is they don't live long enough, which is Aww. true. They're yeah. unfortunately only live two years, but they... People always say this like it's a compliment. Uh, they have the personality of dogs, apparently. Yeah. They're very excited to be with you. I'm like dogs okay so he wakes up so mar wakes up or so mar has a difficult night however Mm -hmm. he's he doesn't know where his next meal will come from i think mainly he's quite cold and he's he does remember master abraham and the comforts of home but then he lucks out the next morning he runs into his old friend or old frenemy i should say ponto Yeah, you might remember Ponto from previous episodes. Ponto is a poodle, and Murr first meets Ponto when Ponto's human patron comes with Ponto in tow to Master Abraham's house. The human patron has some business with Master Abraham, and Murr is first afraid of Ponto. He's not super sure about it, but then after just a short while, they form this fast friendship only for Ponto to later betray Murr. Ponto tells his human patron about Murr's scholarly pursuits, and then the human patron goes and tells Master Abraham about it, which sets off this kind of crisis of, not necessarily confidence, but crisis of of faith or in his relationship with Master Abraham. Yeah. By the way, do you think that Ponto did that on purpose? Because one thing we never get, actually, is Ponto's perspective on that whole incident with Professor Lothario reading the papers. Ponto brings the papers directly to him. So it's clear that there's some intent there. But that being said, many dogs perform tricks that they know will get pleasing reaction from the human patron that they're getting from. And we'll see this with Ponto. Oh, we're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I know. We'll see this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Ponto. Okay. Let's talk about Ponto then. We, we can't answer this question until we talk about this scene. Which yes. Is, 
Because it's more characterization about Ponto and his motivation. Like, we learn a lot about what he does and why he does it in this interaction with Murr. This is one of my favorite scenes from this part. (laughs) It's a good one. But I say that about a lot of scenes, so I may say that again. Who knows? But this is a great scene. Yes. Okay, so what happens? Ponto shows up. Yes. So Ponto shows up and is like, Murr, my dear fellow. I don't know if he calls him a dear fellow. There's some dear fellows. are you so unworldly? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of deer fellows in this section. I don't know if there's actually one right here. But Ponto is like, Mur, my, my dude, things are fine. And so Ponto, and so Mur is, even though they parted on not the best of terms the last time, uh, or I don't know if they saw each other last time, or if Mur just knew that Ponto had done that. I'm not, I don't remember. The latter, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like, yeah. Ponto wasn't present at the scene yes. where this whole yep. denouement happened. Yes. Okay, so even though Mur is... Murr's last feelings of Ponto, the last time we heard of him, were not super friendly. He was a little frustrated with Ponto. He's very, I think, relieved to see him now because it's a friendly face. It's a familiar voice. And Ponto takes him back to the girl with the sausages, uh, who Murr had a slight, a tiny dinner from. Murr is afraid when he sees them back at the sausages. Murr's, don't do this like that. He, what does he call? He calls her a barbarous female, a heartless, beware that heartless, barbarous female with the sausages. He says, take care, beware that heartless, barbarous female, beware the vengeful law governing sausages. So he's just... (laughs) <laughs> the vengeful log governing sausages. Yes, so, the vengeful law. Yes, L A W. Okay, yeah, okay, the vengeful okay. law okay. governing sausages. Murr but is... before this, first of all, Poncho takes the time to throw some shade at Murray yes. and say, "For all your Latin learning, I see <laughs> that you're completely hopeless at this." Yes, you yeah. have street smarts or book smarts, but not street smarts. And so, yeah, Ponto goes up to this girl, and he. <laughs> So he stands on his back legs. He does his like little puppy stuff. He like prances around her. He lays his head on her. It's so cute. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the girl, do you want a sausage? Oh my gosh, you sweet little poodle. What, a, what an adorable creature. And Ponto's, yes, let me do it. He does his little dancey dance, as, as the kids say. He does his little dancey <laughs> dance. And the girl is suitably charmed and gives him the sausage, which Ponto very generously takes to Mer and lets Mer kiss That was Phil. very sweet of him. Yes. And then they, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why this detail really stuck with me, but they, Murr says, we walked slowly side by side so that it was not difficult for us to conduct a sensible conversation as we went along. So I'm just imagining this cat and this poodle walking side by side. Murr is like eating his sauces and <laughs> making a sensible conversation. Yes, and it sounds like they've kept pace with each other very nicely, which it is not easy yes. to do when you're walking through city streets with someone. Sometimes it's usually one behind the other. Never walking nicely. nicely side by side this whole conversation with Murr and Ponto they talk about a lot of things but one of the first things that Murr says to Ponto is thank you for the sausage but I would never do that and then Ponto has a very interesting response to this let's hear what Ponto has to say well when I perform tricks in front of human beings just on my own account really I derive uncommon pleasure from it, since the fools believe I act out of particular fondness for their own persons, purely to amuse and entertain them. Oh yes, that's what they think. 
even if I obviously have different ends in view. And you, my dear fellow, have just seen a perfect example. You'd think the girl would have realized at once that I only wanted a sausage, and yet she was delighted to see me doing tricks for her, a stranger, as if I knew her for a person able to appreciate such things. And since she was so delighted, she did as I wanted. The worldly wise must be able to make everything done purely for themselves look as if it were done for the sake of others, who will then feel very much indebted to them and be willing to do as they wish. Ruff, ruff. As we just heard, and I think this ties back to our previous conversation about Ponto's motives, Ponto is performing tricks for humans for a couple reasons, mainly, and, and they have very little to do with the humans' pleasure solely. It's not solely to make the humans happy. It's to make the humans happy and get something Ponto wants, or because Ponto himself is, he says that he derives uncommon pleasure out of having humans think that he has done, that he's doing something because he loves them rather than for his own gain for his own reasoning so we can see that with the sausage he's like dancing around he's like making the girl think oh my gosh like he's so he's what a sweet poodle but it's really because he wants something he wants the sausage from her so if we take back to the conversation about ponto giving the mer's manuscript to professor lothario or mer's writings to professor lothario is that because he thought professor lothario like it's not i think there's an interesting argument there that Ponto is doing it because he likes to please Professor Lothario, but not just to please him for the sake of pleasing him because he's a pleasing creature, but because he can get something from that. What? <laughs> Do you really think that? I don't. And he says it. He says, I de- derive uncommon pleasure that they, since the fools believe I act out of uncommon This or- is so interesting. Okay, because this passage, right, on its own, who's training who? Like, we're, the dogs are training us to do tricks. Okay, whatever, we get it. But I hadn't made that connection between this and Ponto's previous actions yeah. that we got without any motive attached to it. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, he brings Professor Lothario Murr's pages one day. Yeah, but why? I'm and it sure, seems but, like in this passage... Yeah. Ponto is saying he never does anything without having a motivation behind it that's self-serving, right? Like, he yeah. is saying, he's he calls humans fools, like, several times in this passage, where, because he's saying that they ascribe this, like, motivation to what he's doing, this motivation of, like, love or devotion to them or whatever, wanting to please them. But really, it's him trying to do, it's, he says it's merely judicious conduct, soundly based on recognizing other people's folly. Interesting. And then Murr is still, Murr still doesn't quite buy it. He says, Mm -hmm. I still can't believe that you'd enjoy doing this. And then Ponto describes this incident where he got a slice off a joint of meat Mm -hmm. and he brought it to Professor Lothario instead of eating it himself. And he says, what do you think would have happened if I'd just eaten the joint myself? Professor Lothario may have gotten upset with him. But instead, by bringing the meat to Professor Lothario, he actually ensured that he got... Uh, a very choice, large slice of meat, sanctioned by Professor Lothario himself. Yes. I was very confused by this. (laughs) What's going on? He's He's playing four-dimensional chess. (laughs) No, but he took a joint off whose meat? Like, he Uh, took a joint. It's like a meat. Just a meat. Okay, so I make some... (laughs) 
some meat with pork joints. For, yeah. I'm, I, okay. Yeah. I make the <laughs> lamb chop for dinner. Let's see. Yeah. Is what's happening here? The dog takes a joint off the takes takes a slice off the lamb chop and brings it to me, and I'm impressed by that and give him meat I, I, he, he has a clear caveat here which is that he only would bring it to his master if he was being observed so if he's unobserved so he, there's like multiple meat scenarios so one is okay yeah. yeah one is if it's my dinner i'm just putting out that i don't like it when my cats bring pieces of my own <laughs> dinner back to me they do it both digested and undigested <laughs> and pre-digested and mostly they'll just pick up a tortilla chip yeah. and run away and sit in a corner I think he's so saying what, that if he just, it? I, th- <laughs> I think he's just saying if he happens upon meat, it, he's, I read it as it's not just like ownerless meat, yeah, just, just some ownerless meat in the corner, just waiting for, and this is 19th century, right? What? So maybe like, there's standards for meat. No, or- <laughs> I don't think there was ownerless meat that your dog could just go, I was very confused by this. I was like, what? Basically, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe he's a hunting dog. I don't know. Poodles are hunting dogs. Maybe he was but out hunting. But it's cooked meat. It's a joint off some meat. This is what I'm saying. I make a lamb chop. My cat brings a slice off of it like, and brings it. it to me. Yeah. They never do that. They would just eat. That's what he says. He says, if my human is around, I will bring it to him. If he's not around, I'll eat it myself. But no, if your human is around, why would you bring? <laughs> if, yeah, it was the, the human's meat, meat in the first place. If the if there was meat around, yeah. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but that is why we started this podcast. Yeah, no, I, so that we can talk in <laughs> one place. <laughs> he says, "Paw on heart." I must confess that if I came upon a nice joint of meat all by itself in the corner, I'd certainly gobble it up. So I think it is just a meat by itself in the corner. And if his master happens to be there, he decides to bring it to them. Um, Meat on its own in the corner is I make a lamb chop. I leave the room. The cats find, get a slice off the lamb chop and they eat it quite. And I never find out until I come back to the kitchen. (laughs) Yes. But maybe sometimes... So this is getting very deep into potential dog psyche. But so sometimes my dog will find things out and bring them to me. And it's almost like the same. It's like the retriever behavior where I found this thing and I'm giving it to you and the human doesn't want it. So there could be also we're also not seeing Professor Lothario's point of view on this. So maybe for Ponto, any found meat is valuable meat. And for Professor Lothario, the found meat is not valuable meat, but the behavior is valuable. So even if Ponto is finding meat that Professor Lothario doesn't want, Ponto's getting like brownie points. Or finding meat from Professor Lothario's exactly. own dinner that he's about to sit down to. Exactly. No matter what, it's still rewarding the yes. behavior. Yeah, it's not about the meat. It's That's about the behavior thing. of bringing the meat, I think, is the, the key. So the meat yeah. can, we can find the meat anywhere. The meat can be Lothario's, the meat can be some random meat in a corner. Um, There's no ownerless meat, okay? <laughs> Actually, you know what? Now that all of the, now that we're saying all of this, I am remembering. <laughs> so I lived in Philly. We've both lived in Philly for a amount of time. Yes. No, please share. No, there's many. I have many stories about Knox finding meat in Philly, unfortunately. <laughs> but, so I lived at like a bus stop and people would just leave wings, like bones, boneless wings on my stoop. 
constantly. So we'd always come home to meet. So that was ownerless meat. Uh, and then, and then <laughs> also we walked in this park all the time that had, it, it had some eight, like an Asian flea market there during the weekends, but then it also had others. There's just people using the park. <laughs> so Nux found so many things like, and would bring them like he's found entire dead bird carcasses just, and he would bring them back to me. And so I think that that's, dead bird yes an entire dead bird which is again what is that if not ownerless meat if i was the professor lothario of the situation Knox bringing me the dead bird i was horrified but not angry with like i praised the behavior if that makes sense you did okay yeah i wasn't sure if you were like no we don't do that no because i want him to come back to me like i want him to come back to me and bring me things because that's what we do with ball He's going to hear me. But that's what we do with Ball. So that could be also what Ponto and Lothario, oh, you're doing this nice thing. Even though Lothario's like, I don't want this meat. Like, where did this owner this meat (laughs) Hey, that's my dinner. (laughs) Don't offer me my own dinner. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) And also, if it's not my own dinner, where did you get this? Why do you have this meat? (laughs) Yeah, I'm more, I guess I'm thinking more of the situation where it's my dinner and it's being. Yes presented to me by my dog yes <laughs> no yeah, like I, want, I had that because, because that's the, that's my life yeah. that I'm living every day is like every single they've identified that I'm the weakest link in this household so they always crowd around me yeah when I'm eating they love anything that they can grab with one little <laughs> toe just dip it in I just grab a little bit of so they love Tortilla chips, yeah. quesadillas, Just slide it, <laughs> and they love oil. Any kind of oil dispensers. Oh, oil dispensers. Yeah, yeah. You had to hide them all. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh Ponto. <laughs> so it is. A, yes, back to back to Ponto. <laughs> I think it is really fascinating that again Ponto is constantly playing 4D chess and like thinking what can I what behavior will I do that will get a reaction that I want out of this human whatever the whoever the human is and understandably I think Murr has the same reaction that we did which is everything you do a lot yes. <laughs> Murr is are you so world are you so unworldly yes. Murr and Murr says are you so diabolical yeah. Ponto? is this what you think is this how you're behaving with me too and Ponto says oh no not you I don't envy you are dry as dust learning <laughs> And anyway, if you were to ever cross me, I would just, i just bite you. Yeah. 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 Gets, I don't know about Ponto. He's still, definitely still in frenemy zone yes. at the end of this incident, I would, I would say. My advice for Murr is that if someone is doing something to everyone else, <laughs> they're doing it to you too. <laughs> you are never the exception. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Murr, take heed. And then we, we... We'll leave on a cliffhanger. Yes. Just like the book does with Murr's story. We the Murr and Ponto are walking, they're walking back. I think we are to believe that Ponto is knows the way home, is leading them home. Mm-hmm. But then I think Murr is kind of unaware of where they're walking really. He's yeah. still making his map of the neighborhood, perhaps. Yes. But then they suddenly they hear people shouting fire and they hear this all this terrible commotion on one of the on, on the very block of the city that they're going back to mm-hmm. ponto runs away ahead and Murr climbs a tall ladder leaning against a building and then he finds himself on the roof of a building and there's a fire 
And that's where we're going to stop. We're going to see what happens next episode. Well, Murr is up to all of this. We've got this other book going on. So tell us, what what is Kappelmeister Chrysler up to? We'll see from part two onwards that the connections between the Murr and Chrysler sections of the book are very on the nose and they'll stay that way for the rest of the book. So if in part to Murr is working through his his adolescence constructed as that is by humans Chrysler is having his own adolescent woes as well and we learn about a lot of these uh, a lot of part two actually on the Chrysler side is in flashbacks some of them are flashbacks Mm -hmm. back to Chrysler's adolescence Chrysler spends his childhood in this German town it's a beautiful German town I hear has a very long name. It's a fic- it's it's a fictitious yes. town. I'm gonna pronounce the name once, and then we're going to call. Okay, it's Gönjenismul. We will refer to it as Gmul from now on. So Chrysler yes. grew up in this town that's full of a colorful cast of characters. As we've said mm-hmm. before, Chrysler is a bit of a stand-in for E.T.A. Hoffman himself. So one of the major flashbacks in Part two is back to Chrysler's formative years learning music. And it, it's a matter of guesswork. Um, and we're not really, we're not going to go into obsessive detail about whether or not this precisely mirrored Hoffman's experiences. But it's clear that a lot of the setting for Chrysler's childhood is drawing on Hoffman's own experience of childhood, learning music, living with this uncle, and so on and so forth. So we've talked a little bit about this uncle in part one. This is the uncle who let Chrysler down through benign support. (laughs) So we learn in part two a little bit about Chrysler's earliest music teacher, which is a very... I'm not a big music... I almost said music... I almost said music physician... (laughs) I'm not that either, but I'm not a big musician. So, yes, yes. But I know that Haley has some thoughts on the figure of the music teacher. So basically, we are in his childhood in the town of Gmule, colorful characters. One of the people that's about town <laughs> is this man named Herr Abraham Liskov. And if you are a slightly more careful reader than we were, you'll realize immediately Abraham. Yes, indeed. Herr Abraham Liskov is Master <laughs> Abraham. But we don't get, we don't actually, that isn't spelled out for us directly in plain letters until a little bit later in part two. We just meet this, meet this eccentric character named Herr Liskov, who is a, what does he do? He's like a freelance organ repairman slash magician, but he knows that the real freelance bucks are all in magic, so... When he when the organ stuff doesn't work out for some reason, he to go town to town doing these little performances yes. for people. I've been I'm realizing as you're recapping, this is like the exact resume of every boyfriend I've had. <laughs> like every musician boyfriend has been like a like freelance like repair of something, but then also like some other career. It's uncomfortably recognizable. I think the the organ the organist thing is actually like a full-time job. Like he's like the town organ repairman or maybe the town organist as well. I wasn't totally clear on what would be the use of a resident organ builder in your town. Presumably, once he built the organ, it'd be done. But I, I don't know. Yes. Maybe you build an <laughs> organ that needs repairing every two weeks. 
That's your meal ticket. (laughs) Planned obsolescence in your organ design. Okay, so he meets Chrysler. (laughs) Well, he kind of immediately insists on hearing Chrysler play, right? At their very first meeting, Master Abraham slash Hairless Cove. He insists on hearing Johannes play, which is... And then we like find out later that he ends up taking like a liking to Johannes, and obviously their relationship continues for years and years. But I feel like that's that. So this was this book was written in the 19th century, but that music teacher hearing you play immediately is very common up until present day, where they they have a new pupil who's brought to them, and it's play for me, pupil, and almost let me decide before I've even taught you how what you sound like and whether you're kind of worth the investment of my time or effort. And so that was one of those things I was like, oh man, that still happens right, <laughs> just, right that now. That just reminds me of the bassoon. Yes, that's what I was thinking, the bassoon article. <laughs> so for those of you who are not familiar with the bassoon incident, there was a music educators conference in Texas, I want to say a couple months ago, and one of the slides from one of the presentations went viral and it basically said it was for four bassoon instructors First of all, what is a bassoon, Haley? I still don't know. Well, it's almost as impractical as an organ, which is why I think this bassoon slide was, was why the bassoon teacher thought this was okay to say. But it's, a, it's like a big, very long woodwind instrument with double reeds, and it's hard to play, it's hard to sound good, and <laughs> it is, it's an expensive instrument as well. It's not very common. It's basically how to find students who are worth the effort that you are going to expend on them yes. teaching bassoon. Yes. And the things were, look for, do they live in an apartment or in a house? Do they control the state of their yards? Or is it controlled for yes. them? Do they, yes. what were the other ones? Do they move are a lot? Th- do they have... Are they interested in mathematical and literary arts? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they explicitly said, are they from a two-parent household? But they honestly might have because it was, that was they're, how bad They're it sussing was. it out. They're seeing who's picking you up from school. Yeah. Or are you yeah. just taking the bus? And that's basically what... <laughs> Yes, exactly. Can't bring a bassoon on a bus. And that's basically what Herr Liskov, or what, you know, Herr Liskov slash Master Abraham does right here. Where Except it's, it's not insist- to establish, it's like the opposite of that, right? It's not to establish Chrysler's yeah. normie credentials. It's, what is yeah. he, okay, sorry, we're, we're just glossing over the best thing that happened in this. So he tells his child to play the, I almost said bassoon. He tells the child to play the organ. And then as Chrysler is playing, he kicks the stool out from under him. So Chrysler falls down and is like very he's like shocked. He's like, it's a little kid. He's 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 like, you know, what the hell is going on? Yeah, what just happened? And then Liskov says what does he say? I don't think Liskov says anything right then. Like the uncle. That's right. Johannes's uncle and Chrysler's uncle and Chrysler himself are like, what the hell is going on? The uncle is like, how dare you? You can't do that. And then Chrysler, this isn't the organ guy. This is a madman, basically. We find out later that he he actually did this because he didn't like the song that the uncle told Chrysler to play. He's like, I, I had a better <laughs> song for you to play. So I, that's why I kicked the stool out from under you. <laughs> music education is uh yeah passionate business it's a rough world so my music background is that i grew up playing the flute for years and years and then i also was in the high school marching band and then after that i just wanted to keep marching and so i taught myself several other instruments um so that i could march drum corps and if you as a listener are a drum corps 
person, a core alumni, all of this will sound very familiar to you. <laughs> the like, the like rough first meeting with a music instructor who sets like who wants to see your talent before they even talk to you, and then messes with you constantly, and all for your, supposedly your benefit as a musician. But you're always like is this for my benefit or is it not? Like we had a, when we would march drum course, sometimes our instructor, our favorite instructor would take a tennis ball and just throw it as far as he possibly could and make us run to get it for him and then come back and play. Please tell me that you only did that because you enjoy jumping up at sausage carts as it is and know (laughs) the reaction you'll get from him. No pack mentality. We all ran after the tennis ball, and then we'd come back and play things. And it, and I feel like that was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying this now, and it sounds absurd based on your face and reaction. <laughs> but it was it happened every day of my life for three months in a row. And that was again our favorite instructor. We had one. I had one who would for- throw pork chops at us from the top of the. Uh, <laughs> the top of the but it was a good thing why are these all relating so directly to ponto <laughs> this is very alarming meat <laughs> i'm chasing stuff meat. throwing meat yeah we would have to <laughs> ownerless <laughs> meats we would throw meat at us yeah owner you'd throw ownerless meats at us from the we were basically dogs except <laughs> we didn't get we never got sausage we never got sausage sure why Haley decided to leave Philadelphia. I thought it was a great spot and we saved a ton of money on housing and food. It was so nice. Where in Philadelphia did you live? I lived near the Cat Street Theater in West Philly. We were in South Philly, which was just the most amazing place to find groceries for cheap, even for free. There was just meat everywhere, Pebbles, let me tell you. I will never forget the first time we came home and somebody had just left a delicious pile of chicken wings on our stoop. It was like Christmas. Now, are these dumpster wings? Because I was always a great connoisseur of dumpster wings in Cincinnati. They were just left on a platter for us, just for me to find on the stoop. I was walking a little bit ahead of Haley, which is what I always do. You know, it's my job in the relationship to make sure the way is clear for her. And then as we rounded the corner to the house, I smelled something delicious. And then I just saw the wings there just laid out um, in this beautiful box. Like it had been left for me. Again, like almost like a Christmas present. So it wasn't a dumpster. No, it was just left on our stoop. I mean, the people of South Philly are so generous. I couldn't believe it. I was so thrilled. I grabbed some and I turned to give them to Haley. And she just, she screamed so loud. She was so happy. She was so thrilled. You might like this app that Deanna started. It's called the Leftovers app. Leftovers just without the E. And it's great for finding out if there are any leftovers in the house near you. And you can add your meals and Deanna will come and eat your leftovers for you. Is there a way that I can have it find leftovers for me too? Because I, I love a good leftover. Oh, so you'd like to work for the leftovers app. Hmm. We're pretty full up on the eaters for the leftovers app. I was more hoping that you had leftovers you could contribute to the cause. 
we've actually been having some trouble finding leftovers ourselves because one of our top customers, Pratima, is now claiming that she didn't list her leftovers in the app and they just keep showing up there and we keep showing up to eat her food. Well, I mean, it sounds like being an eater is my absolute dream job, so I'm not surprised that there aren't openings, but I mean, if there are, I'd love to put my name at the top of the list because I am a fantastic eater, if I do say so myself. Well, I'll definitely mention it to Deanna. She's head of the business side of things. I'm just in charge of, of marketing and recruiting. We've just been pumping venture capital money into it for years and years now, hoping that it'll be sustainable in the end. But you know what they say. Every good idea starts by losing money. Well, make sure to look for us on the App Store and make sure to look on our website to see if we're ever hiring. As we like to say in the biz, it's not stealing, it's leftovers. The kind of like eccentric music teacher is such a... I don't think I've ever had a music teacher I would not describe as eccentric. And I would... And I would, I feel like we all have, as a student, you have a little bit of anticipation when you meet a new teacher for the first time, no matter what the discipline is. Like you walk into the first day of class and you're, oh, I just wonder what this person will be like. And that's just like tenfold with a music teacher. I feel like every teacher I ever had, it would not just be like, what kind of music will they teach and what, okay, but will they throw pork chops at me from from the the, the top? (laughs) Don't worry, they're complimentary pork chops, but complimentary as an I and E. Yes. And so we see that in my life experience. And then also here, also here, right, in in Chrysler's interactions with Herr Liskov, where it's like he is, Herr Liskov is, he's seen as the most eccentric in this town of eccentrics. And that is part of his genius. That's kind of part of why he is who he is. By the way, Um, just try saying Herr Liskov five times fast. Herr Liskov, Herr Liskov. (laughs) Sounds... Cool, he Master Abraham. Like hairless <laughs> yeah. I see why he started going by his first name. Yes, Master Abraham. But yeah, and then also his departure. Oh, yeah, I love his departure. He leaves. So he one day he just leaves town. Okay, so we find out that he did this because Johannes was playing some normie music that his uncle had given him, <laughs> and yeah, ter- the nineteenth-century term for normie is normie music that his uncle gave him is terrible murkies and minuets also he calls it a lamentable cantalina (laughs) he's got a few i gotta start using some of these next time someone does something just embarrassing i'll be like oh what a lamentable cantalina (laughs) okay so one day he just pieces out and tells Mm -hmm. johannes that he is going to leave Johannes to his own devices to find another mentor. And then, and then on his way out, he says, if your uncle misses his red flowered waistcoat, tell him I stole it to have it made into a turban. <laughs> <laughs> this is final tuition. His parting blow. His parting blow. It's <laughs> <laughs> so then, good. And then, and then Johannes becomes a privy legation counselor. So after we hear about this childhood experience or adolescent experience of Chrysler with his music teacher, Herr Liskov, i.e. Master Abraham, who, you know, of course, in spite of any any trauma that 
may or may not have been imparted during these adolescent music lessons. Chrysler and Master Abraham obviously remain quite close later in their lives. But after we hear about this incident, this kind of formative incident from Chrysler's adolescence, the narrator of the Chrysler biography tells us that he's come he's come to the second incident that he'd like to tell us about. But unfortunately, his sources are very bad and he's not going to be able to fill in the gaps to tell us about how Chrysler, who has become a uh, privy legation counselor, eventually loses that job and then becomes a Kapellmeister at the Duke's court. Instead of a, a true account of what happened, which the biographer says he can't give us, instead of that, we get this veiled reference to to Napoleon, to the Napoleonic Wars. We learned that there was a mighty crowned colossus who descended upon the prince in the region, and that's how Chrysler lost his position as privy legation counselor. This probably mirrors an incident in Hoffman's life as well, who, along with some other Prussian legal administrative officials, also lost his job in the wake of uh, the Napoleonic um, Wars. That's where we are. This is precisely the point where he quits his privilegation counselor career and gets back into music and becomes a Kapellmeister at this Grand Duke's court. But that's obviously, that's precisely the story that we uh, don't get to hear. And then we also learn that the Grand Duke's court that Chrysler goes to work at, we learned that Grand Duke has assumed or absorbed rather the land of Prince Irenaeus. So we talked in previous episodes about how Prince Irenaeus had this kind of small territory that he was the leader of, which he lost control over. This is the first time we learned that the Duke who Chrysler worked for was actually, we don't really know if the Duke was the one doing the absorbing or if the Duke is just- I think the Duke is just like a beneficiary. Yeah, I was gonna say, he's just like the leader of the land that potentially was absorbed in this Napoleonic period. So Chrysler has gone from adolescent music lessons to privy legation counselor to Kapellmeister at the Duke's court. When we first met him, he had quit the job at the Duke's court and had arrived at the court of Prince Irenaeus, who's not a real prince. But in part two, we get more backstory about his life before he came to Prince Irenaeus's court. In the next episode, we'll pick up with Murr and the House on Fire, and we'll also talk about some more metaphorical fires, namely the fire of love. See you then. (laughs) 